right. Last week, we had a shout out to all of our uh, country music friends. Today, paying tribute to the 80s, right? I hear that song I instantly in high school. Oh, that song moves me. The 80s, hallelujah. Otherwise known as the greatest decade to grow up in ever. Can I get some love for my Gen X brothers and sisters? All right. A few of you are out there. Okay. All right. Well, it's good to see you today. Hallelujah. Uh, I, I'm glad you're, you're here with us, and I uh, welcome you to Generations Church. We're going to have a good time here. If you have your Bibles, you can, if you want to be getting ahead, you can uh, turn them to Philippians 3. That's where we're at. This week, I, I learned something very cool, very interesting, at least to kind of a geek like me, and that was, I don't know if you heard this in the news, but NASA has discovered that Pluto, which used to be a planet... That's still wrong, but it used to be, Pluto has blue skies. Did you know that? It has this atmosphere, and it's got blue skies. They showed some pictures. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful, and if you watch the news very much about what's going on around the world, it sounds kind of like a nice place to go right now, (laughs) right? I mean, there's so much bad news going on all over the world, and going on right here in our community. Um, My goodness, it would be easy to get overwhelmed with what's happening on planet Earth, and just think, you know, God, I'm, I'm done. Anytime you, you want to take me, if you, you know, want to fly me by Pluto on the way to heaven, that's great. But you know what? That's not what we're called for. We're not called to sit around and, and wait for the, the blessed day that, that we're all going to evacuate here. We are called to live as Christ and live as Christians right here on this planet. We are called for a time as this. You were called to live in this place in this time right? You have a special purpose on your life. And so that means we've got to learn not like how to just ignore what's going on around us, but how to live with relentless joy while everything's happening all around us. We want to live with relentless joy. We want to be able to, whatever is happening around us or to us, we want to be able to say, okay, that's real, but I have something inside that matters even more. There's something, my joy is anchored on something besides what's going on in the news. Amen? Amen. So that's what we're all about in this series. We're we're walking through Philippians. Today we're in chapter 3. We are just trucking right on along. We've been unpacking this amazing letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. And we've flown through the first two chapters at a pretty quick clip here. But now, these last two chapters that we're going to go through, uh, you'll notice these chapters are just, they are filled with such deliciousness. We're we're going to be taking them in smaller bites. We're going to slow down a little bit so we can really sink our teeth uh, into everything uh, the scriptures say to us. Uh, So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to focus on just the first three verses of chapter three. We're going to, the first three verses. But what I want to do also, I want you to see where we're headed. I want you to see what Paul is talking about because we want to read it in context. That's kind of the point of this whole series. So we want to understand in context what's going on here. So I'm going to start off by reading the first 11 verses in chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, and then we'll unpack the first three today. We'll do the rest next week. Everybody clear on that? Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, 
though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Verse 9. And be found in him. And not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. These these 11 verses are some of my very favorite verses in the entire New Testament. I have to admit. And it's not really because they they stand out as being like the most poetic or the most exciting, really, but because the words that we've just read here are so embedded with foundational truth for how we live together as a community of believers. We could just camp here for weeks and weeks, and that would be awesome. They are powerful words. Okay, so let's go through these first three verses here because there's some really, uh, really life-changing stuff here. Philippians 3, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, we've, we've seen all this already. Paul goes back and forth between these two themes of joy and suffering. Joy and suffering. And here again, he starts chapter 3 with joy. He's going to end it with encouraging them in their suffering. But this idea of rejoicing in the Lord. Now, for some of us, that's kind of a strange concept. Rejoicing in the Lord, right? I know some people have a hard time holding these two concepts of rejoicing, that's like celebrating, partying, fun off the charts, having fun. Then you have this other concept of in the Lord, right? Like your Christian religion over here. You might have a hard time holding these two concepts together in your mind. You're like, eh, they, they, those, are, those things don't really blend, right? That, you, over here, I've got my, I've got my party life, and then I've got my religious life. Some people live the spiritual equivalent of a mullet. Anybody know what a mullet is? The mullet hairstyle, right? Made popular by Billy Ray Cyrus. Um, the mullet, business in the front, party in the back. The Canadian passport, the mud flap, you know, hockey hair. Achy breaky, big mistakey, y'all know that? Uh, the El Camino. Okay, the spiritual, it's, it's mullet spirituality, right? Business in the front, party in the back. We keep them separate. And if, if you have a hard time with this concept of rejoicing in the Lord, of seeing these two things actually blended into the same life, then I would say you either have a warped view of what it means to be a Christian, or you have a warped view of partying, because you might consider that one of those needs to change in your life. I would just suggest that. Because ultimately, I think 
I might be crazy, but I just think it should be the people who are in Christ, who are most passionate about Jesus, who have the most to celebrate. Don't you? If you are in Christ, if you have been delivered and saved by Jesus, you have the most to celebrate. And that leaks out in a thousand ways in your life. It should not be a contradiction to rejoice, to celebrate, to be the life of the party in every sense of the word, the life of the party, and to be in Christ. There should be no contradiction there. So anyway, that's a freebie. Next, he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. We get the impression here that he is about to remind them of something important that he's apparently already told them before. He must have said to them at an earlier time, maybe when he was with them, maybe in a letter or something. But he calls it a safeguard for you, meaning that this isn't necessarily, what he's about to tell them isn't necessarily a problem that they have right now. You know, he's not saying like, you guys are having a problem with this. But it's so important, he says, I want to warn you about this again, as I did before. Warn you so you can stay healthy, so you stay on solid footing. Okay, that's what that word safeguard means in the Greek. It's solid footing. So, now, so far in this letter that we've been reading for the last few weeks, Paul's been really encouraging, right? He's been awesome. I mean, he's chained up, but he's been like, you guys are doing great. God is great. No matter what, what the suffering is, you guys are doing great. I'm so proud of you. I'm doing great. We're going to make it. Christos Kerdos, right? He's, been, he's just been telling them this. And all of a sudden, Paul's happy voice gets all dark and scary here. In verse 2, he says, watch out for them dogs, right? In the South, that's spelled D-A-W-G, dogs. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Cue the 80s speed metal, right? Okay, Paul, wow, what's going on? Did you take a nap after chapter chapter 2 and you like woke up on the wrong side of the bed now? What's going on here? He seems kind of grumpy. No, no, no. What's happening here is, see, Paul's been encouraging his friends in Philippi, and then he stops and he thinks, you know what? If there's anything, if there's one thing, that I need to warn you guys about. It's this. And he lists three things. He says to beware the dogs, those evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. We're going to talk about what these three, three things are today. He says, watch out. Some of your translations might say, beware. Uh, the word means to center your attention on, to be, to be literally be aware of, beware. Paul's saying that to live with an ongoing, healthy Christian mindset, you need to look long and hard at this mentality he's going to be telling us about and avoid it at all cost. What's happening here, the things he uses, so typical of Paul, he's brilliant, he's embedding all kinds of imagery in here that is easy to get lost on me and you. So we're going to kind of unpack what he's really saying here. And also I'll throw in a little word of caution as we go along. Now, the, the people group that he's referring to in this first century context is the Jews. He's talking about the Jews. But let me say this. Uh, we're not here to do what, what, unfortunately, many Christians have done over the last 2,000 years and completely missed the point, which was bashing folks for being Jewish. Okay? We on the same page there? That's not what this is about. That is so not the point. Paul, just like Jesus and and the prophets before him, he critiques the Jewish religion, not because it's Jewish, but because it is religion. 
Okay? That's very, very important. Not because it is Jewish, but because it is religious. We might say this, religion is rotten, but people are precious. Okay? And that is true all over the world. Religion is rotten. It'll kill you. But people are precious. All people are precious. So that means this criticism that we're going to be reading here of first century Judaism in the Bible it is a challenge that is totally transferable to 21st century Christianity, all right? Just, just the same. So the whole point of his warning is that uh, this is why he's warning a church, a Christian church. He's warning them that any Christians at any time can adopt this religious mentality. So our enemy here that he's going to be talking about is a dog mentality. It's a, it's a spirit. Our enemy is not any specific group of people, right? Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirit, okay? That's our enemy. That's our enemy. So our true enemy here is this mentality of religiosity. That's what we want to avoid. It's the, what, what it is, it's this mentality of taking a precious, intimate relationship with God, taking this precious thing that God offers, an intimate relationship with him called faith, and turning that into a system of works called religion. Taking this precious offer of a relationship with the most holy God and turning it into a system of works, a system of salvation called religion. And that is something that even those of us who are sold out to Jesus can be tempted to slip into. All of us can be guilty of it. Which is why Paul is warning this Christian church against slipping into this religious mindset. Now, why dog? Paul mentions dog. Uh, dog, today as well as 2,000 years ago, is, was, was considered an unclean, filthy animal in the Middle East, right? Even today in their culture, the dog is this unclean, filthy animal. They weren't pets like we think of them today. They were more like possums and raccoons, you know, scavengers. Uh, These the scavengers who would run in packs, that's what they thought of them, like vultures on four legs. That was the mentality of, of the dog. Always roaming the streets, looking for an easy meal, looking to pick off whatever they could get, eating from the garbage, eating the scraps. They were not cute, warm, friendly, man's best friend that we think of today. Or even the little tiny toy dog some people have in their lap, which I would argue is barely a dog. Uh, but we won't go there if that's your thing. That's cool. Dogs in, in first century Palestine, they were infamous for eating garbage, eating table scraps. And so it became a metaphor used by first century Jews for people who were not Jews. It was, it was a pejorative. It's what they called people who were not Jews, that is, Gentiles. And because dogs were unclean, they ate garbage. And so Paul is, is institu- he's saying this sort of ironic, he's putting an ironic play on this, because the idea of a person who eats garbage was for Jews an offense, mainly because it was an offense against dietary law. Garbage ain't kosher, right? There's no kosher garbage. So, so and, and part of the religious boundary markers that Jews set, that held for themselves, that set them apart from the rest of the world as God's people, was that they kept kosher. They ate the right foods, and so to call a Gentile or a non-Jew a dog was to say, you people over there, y'all are so outside of the covenant, and you prove it because you'll eat anything. That was the mindset about the Gentiles. Now Paul comes along. And we've already learned a bit about Paul. Here comes Paul. Remember, he is a former super Jew, 
okay? He is skilled. He is like a Jewish green beret, right? He's a black belt in jujitsu, right? <laughs> I, that was bad. I had to say that. Uh, <laughs> So, so Paul knows where he's coming from, right? He was, he was ultimate, you know, super Jew. And he's the person who has this, he, he, said, he comes along and he says, no, 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 wait a second. It's the person who has this sort of exclusivist, prideful, religionista mentality who is the dog. That's the dog. You're the one running in a pack, feeding off the garbage of your own religion. You've turned this intimate relationship with the Almighty, this banquet of blessing offered by God through the risen Christ. You've turned that, and you have chosen the scraps of a religious system. So Paul's pretty hardcore about this. See, one of the things that we celebrate as believers in Christ, one of the things that we celebrate is that he has set us free from both our sins and from religion. We have been set free both from sin and religion because both are deadly. And notice there's no mention here, like I said, that this church uh, we're looking at is currently has a problem. There, there's no mention that Philippi uh, currently has a problem with this. He's simply warning them something that easily happens. By the way, if you ever go over and read the book of Galatians, there's an interesting difference. If you read that, on the other hand, you'll see that it is a big problem there. And Paul is just on a rant throughout that book, if you go and read that, uh, against this mentality apparently that church had already bought into. And so it's why it's important, when we, when we understand this, that he's telling Philippi, this church in Philippi, who doesn't necessarily have a problem with it, but he's warning them about it, that's why it's so important for us at Generations. As much as we don't think this really applies to us, and I know you're, you're perfect, but I'm not perfect, so I need to hear this, right? And the person next to you probably needs to hear this, Right? Even though you don't, the person next to you needs to hear this for sure. And so it's important for us not to skip by this warning, but to go ahead and open up our hearts and listen to what Paul says, because we might get surprised and realize it does apply to us, right? If the Philippians needed to hear it, that means we're not above hearing this warning and asking God, ask God throughout, the, throughout this morning, ask him, where might I need, Lord, to be lovingly warned against falling into spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Where do I need to be warned against that? Maybe even rebuked. Where do I need that, Lord? See, for, for some of us, maybe it's, um, it's about a spiritual or, or like a personal moral code that we live by or a personal conviction, but we're tempted to judge others by that personal conviction, right? God's given us a conviction. We're tempted to judge others by that conviction, or for some of us, it, it's, it has to do with the, the group that we belong to, right? Well, we could even get into that right here. You know, we love our church. Yeah, I'm a member of Generations. And then we get into, yeah, because we're just a little better than that church down the street. Little, yeah, you know. Oh, no, no, no. Or, hey, I'm charismatic. Hallelujah. Shikamo Shandai. I am a little bit more spiritual. Right? Or you might find your pride in like some kind of a denominational heritage, you know? My parents were Baptist, their parents were Baptist, so by golly, in my heart, I'll be Baptist because God loves us best, right? Well, I'm in the Reformed camp. Free will, Reformed, free will, right? And pretty soon people got their torches and ready to burn someone in Jesus' name. (laughs) 
I'm guilty of this. I'm, I'm not telling you like something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm high and mighty about this. We're all guilty of this, right? We all become guilty of this. And I'll tell you, the more, the more I, I, I get to just live this life, the more I kind of see that the really fortunate ones are those among us who weren't religious at all, but God pursued you. And one day you just realized that God loves you and you gave him your heart and you didn't come with any religious baggage. You were the fortunate ones, for real. Because sometimes those, it, it's the folks who, those are the folks who have a lot less gunk that God's got to chip away. Than the rest of us. So, all right. So Paul mentions dogs. Then he mentions evil doers. Evil doers. Here again, he's being ironic because evil doers are exactly what religious Jews took great care and pride at not being. Right. That the primary uh, uh, def- definition of holiness for the Pharisees, which Paul was one, their primary definition was sin avoidance. Sin avoidance. The whole day was spent not doing this, not doing that, making sure you don't do that. Go through the correct formula for righteousness, right? Do just a thousand different rituals every day, the right tasks, the formulas, say the right prayers, the chants, and go through all this to the letter so as not to be an evildoer. But see, holiness is not in not doing bad stuff. Holiness, it's about being the hands and feet of Jesus, it's about being image bearers of Christ to a, a lost and dying world. And, and Christ is our right. He's our righteousness, right? Then Paul mentions mutilators of the flesh. Here's another brilliant play on words. The word he uses, this mutilators of the flesh, comes from a word, katatome. Katatome was this Greek word. It literally means mutilating or spoiling something by cutting through it. Catatome. And it, this was a sin that the Jews uh, viewed pagans and Gentiles as guilty of. Uh, it, was, it was just mutilating the flesh. It was forbidden uh, in the Bible. In Leviticus 26, it forbids the cutting of the body as the pagan nations would do. They would cut themselves when they were doing sacrifices and stuff like that. It even forbids like having a tattoo, um, which would put a lot of us here in trouble. Uh, and, and, unless you want to, you know, kind of look down on your tattooed brother in Christ, uh, if you have pierced ears, you would also be excommunicated. So, so we need lots and lots of grace. Hallelujah. So, uh, however, what was practiced in Judaism was, of course, circumcision. The word for circumcision in the Greek is peritome, and it means to cut around Some of you just sat up a little straighter (laughs) to cut around. So Paul does this play on words. He's comparing peritome to catatome, which was forbidden to the Jews. Paul not only attacks their religiosity, but he's attacking this us versus them mentality of religion. This divisive us versus them, which sees circumcision as part of a salvation system. That is where he's coming from. So he uses this language that would have been shocking to Jewish sensitivities. Since they saw pagans as the one, those were the people who, they cut their flesh to appease their gods. And Paul's going, uh, hello. Right? Now, we're, we're going to spend a few more minutes looking at circumcision this morning. I know about half of you just got really uncomfortable. Uh, but hang, hang with me. Hang with me. 
he's saying that you folks who consider yourself the people of the circumcision, the people of the paratome, you find your pride in these external markers of religion. In reality, you're cutting yourself off from God. You're actually the people of the catatome. You're feeding off the table scraps like dogs. You're doing evil in this, and in this pursuit, you're separating from others. In this pursuit to be separated from others, you're missing the point. So Paul, who is fully Jewish in every sense of the word, as he tells us a few verses later, too much information, he he tells us, when you treat anything, even a God-ordained practice, as somehow this magical external thing that gets you good with God, you're operating like a pagan. It's basically what you're doing. Circumcision was always meant to be a symbol of, of a deeper heart relationship with God. And just because God uses symbols or traditions, which in themselves are not bad, but it doesn't mean that we should fixate on the symbols or the tradition as the thing that gets us right with God. Do you see where he's coming from? And you can see this is completely transferable, the, the application to this to our Christian life, right? I mean, we can get just as hung up today on taking communion or, or water baptism or any other symbolic act that we can mistake for the relationship with Christ itself, himself, Amen. right? Any of those things, we're just as guilty then. Now, like I said, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he takes an even harder approach because the Galatians are, are knee-deep in this mess of listening to folks, telling them that in order to be a good Christ follower, you got to keep kosher and you got to get circumcised. Here's what was happening. Here's how that came about. The first Christians were Jews, right? The first Christians were Jewish Christians. And these were folks who had grown up with stories of Moses and David and Abraham, and they had the Torah, they knew the Torah, they knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. They had heard then about Jesus, the Messiah, and they accepted him as Lord. That's awesome. But they still thought of themselves as Jewish, basically. They thought of themselves as Jewish, and they thought of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So they just thought of themselves as awesome Jews, right? Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But then as word starts to spread outside of Jerusalem, now you got people from around the Roman Empire, people from all kinds of different ethnicities and people groups and speaking different languages, all these different people hearing about Jesus and becoming Christians. So you had some of these Jewish Christians going to these brand new Gentile Christians and going, oh, really? You want to be a Christ follower? Okay, that's great. Have you been circumcised? And they'd be like, no. And they'd be like, well, you need to get that taken care of. We have this little thing we do on Tuesday afternoons. Bite down hard on a towel. It takes about an hour. And, uh, and, and they're going, uh. And if, if you fulfill this ritualistic obligation, then you'll be good with God. Yeah, right? You can imagine why many of the first converts to Christianity were women. <laughs> right? They'd go to church and the men would be like, I'm going to wait in the car until you're done. Go ahead. <laughs> women. And so to these Jewish Christians, there, there were like two tiers of Christians. They saw two tiers of Christians. There were the Jewish ones who had done everything right. Jesus came for them. They had done everything right, proper, the whole lives. They lived by the Torah. Then they accepted Jesus. 
And then they thought there's these Gentile Christians who they don't know any of this stuff. They haven't been raised in any of this. So they're not following any of the proper formulas. They don't understand. They, they're showing up at church uncircumcised, like munching on bacon jerky. It's just, it's horrific, right? These people showing up at church. These Gentiles, all they know is they heard about a risen Savior. They heard about a Christ, and they are like, I need that. I am in. I want that. And so in Galatians 5, Paul is writing to that church, and he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Then we skip on down to verse 12, because he really gets cranked up. He says, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. In other words, I wish those trying to force you to get circumcised, the peritome, would just cut the whole thing off. Well, praise God for his holy word. Hallelujah, right? Amen. Paul, he's so dainty. In Romans, he wrote this. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, no. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. From God. So Paul's saying to these Philippians, watch out. Watch out for those dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh who have become so focused on the externals, they have missed the spiritual emphasis of having a heart circumcised and in a a covenant with God. Let's continue chapter 3. Verse 3, he says, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We, he says, are the circumcision. We are the peritome. We as Christ followers, we understand the true meaning of circumcision. Whether you've done it physically or or not, that's not what's important because we are the circumcision. And then he explains what that means. Because what does that phrase mean? He says to serve God by his spirit and to boast in Christ Jesus. To serve God by his spirit and to boast in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our only boast. It's the only thing worth bragging about is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not my system of religion or what I've achieved through rituals or acts or rules. Jesus is everything, and our salvation comes from him and him alone through faith. The, the true worshipers of God are the people who are always looking for the, the deeper, the relational aspect yeah, relational application of, of everything, not just focused on the external boundary markers of the religion. Be careful around, love them, but be careful around people who are just obsessed with the outward boundary markers of religion. Now, still, if that's the case, what what was the symbolism behind circumcision? First of all, we can say this pretty much for sure. It was obviously invented by God. Why? Why? Because let me ask you a question. What man would ever invent such a thing? (laughs) Are you kidding me, right? 
The answer is no, nobody, nobody. See, listen, from the dawn of time, I'll tell you this, from the dawn of time, every religion on earth, without exception, religions all over the world have one thing in common. They were invented by man for man. They were invented by men for men. And, and religion, and no man came up with this, okay? Unless archaeology, archaeology discovers some kind of a, a small period in Israel's history where like a feminist group rose up and took over Israel and said, this is payback for centuries of oppression. Uh, I'm telling you, this came from God. So what God does is he takes the males of society who, let's admit it, that's the half of the population who typically have the hardest time relating in relational uh, sensitivity to God. We're, you know, we're wired for task and leadership, and we fall in love with our own status as a male. And God says, yeah, you're the ones uh, who are going to get the symbol of our relationship. You're the ones. And it's literally and figuratively, symbolically, the cutting away of anything that stands in the way between you and your most sensitive part, as well as being associated, closely associated with life, with life-giving creation. And so God teaches his people to do the hard work of, of cutting away anything that gets between you and the intimacy that you're to have with God. And I'm not making this stuff up. This is all from Jewish scholarship. We just don't have time to do an entire sermon or series devoted to circumcision. I know you're disappointed about that. Sorry. Um, So we're just touching really quickly on on a very vast and fascinating subject. But if you'd like to jot down some scriptures to go back and and you can kind of dig in and to flesh out, uh, pardon the pun, Genesis 17 is one, uh, it's God's instruction to Abraham regarding this covenant. Deuteronomy 10, 16 uh, is where he commands all of Israel specifically to circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy uh, 36, God says that he will circumcise their hearts so that they will love him completely. So he's talking about the purpose of circumcision. Jeremiah 9, 25 is a part where God, he, he's, he's upset and he laments those who have been circumcised physically but not in their hearts. So uh, I encourage you to go back on your own time and read these. Throughout the Old Testament, we get this ongoing reminder. Over and over, God is reminding them. Sometimes it's a rebuke through the prophets of God saying, guys, I gave you a symbol to help reinforce a spiritual reality, and you focus on the symbol as somehow being magic. He tells them this, and it breaks his heart. This, in essence, is paganism. This is the essence of superstition, the essence of religion. Why does Paul come out so strongly against religiosity? Let me say it as plainly and nicely as possible. Because religion can kill you. Religion utterly destroys the very human soul that it claims to be an expert in. It destroys it kills. It does three things. It separates you from, from a relationship with the true God. Religion gets in the way. It separates you from relationship with true God. It divides you against other, other people, right? It pits man against man. And then it cuts you off from your own true self. See, God wants you to be the you he created you to be. The most unique thing in this universe is you, right? And he wants you to be the real you, the one he created you to be. Religion cuts you off from your true self. 
Next week, we're going to talk some more about what Paul says uh, in verse 8, where he tells us exactly what he thinks of religion. And let me tell you, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, but I want to close this morning with an appeal to our, to our better selves, and that is this. Beware those dogs. Beware those dogs. That sort of us versus them pride. Pride in anything that we do, or even we do as Generations Church, that is, you know, that pride that comes, well, it's different from other Christians. It has no place in the body of Christ. Paul himself, who had reason to feel superior to just about everybody, he proclaimed that we are to boast in one thing and one thing alone, and that is Jesus Christ. That is our boast in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that you let get you puffed up and make you feel superior to another person, you have to ask yourself, is this worth my soul? Whatever it is, is having this pride worth spitting in the face of Jesus and what he did for me? Because Jesus came to set us free not only from our sin, but from religion. And religion is just as deadly because it's the human attempt to prove ourselves worthy. Religion is the human attempt to prove ourselves worthy. Whatever identity you put on to say, look, how superior I am to those guys. It is anti-Christ. It's anti-Christ. The only identity, the only identity that's worth anything is your identity in Christ. Your identity in Christ. And that is the guardian, by the way, of your joy. You want to live with relentless joy in the world, no matter what's going on around you, no matter what comes against you, no matter how you mess up, base your self-esteem, your boasting in who Jesus Christ is, not in yourself. Base your boasting in Jesus Christ, and you will walk in relentless joy, whatever happens around you or to you. And we'll get more into this next week. But as our prayer partners are, will come down forward now to pray with you about anything you have need of, I, I just wanted to do something different today. I want to, as they're coming, I want to let Scripture have the last word in this message. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who lived who loved me and gave himself for me. I, says Jesus, am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you, Father, for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for what he did on the cross. I thank you, Lord God, that we are hidden in him, Father God. We are the righteousness of Christ, and in him we boast. I thank you, Father God, for helping us to remember all through the week, all the little times where we would want 
that'll allow spiritual pride to creep up. That sort of us versus them religiosity, Father God. Just let it die inside us, Father God. Help us to walk in humility and in love and in unity, Lord God, and to pour ourselves out like a drink offering, Father God, as servants to you and to the world that you you love so much, Father God. Help make this a reality to us, Father God. Show us all the little ways where we're guilty of this. We love you so much. I thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy that is new every single morning. We give you all the praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. If you need prayer, come forward. Let these guys pray with you. And we will see you Wednesday night.